Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 16, starting with verse 1. The last time we finished up chapter 15 with the reading of the ratified Jerusalem Council letter and its implications, and today we're going to start chapter 16, where Paul and Barnabas are in full swing in what's known as Paul's second missionary journey. Verse 1. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek, meaning Timothy. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem, which we saw the last time was that Jerusalem council. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. So what we see is Paul and Barnabas, I'm sorry, uh, Paul and Silas are trekking across what we now know as modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor, as opposed to what we know today as Asia proper. In verse 1, it says, they came to Lystra. Remember the apostle Paul was almost killed at Lystra? But Paul goes back. He defies danger to strengthen the believers there, all in the name of serving the Lord. This is a picture of bravery. I've heard pastors say, uh, before I was a pastor, I would listen to their discussions, and they would say, ministry is not for the faint of heart, right? There's all kinds of not only temporal challenges, but there's often spiritual challenges. And Tayo just spoke about praying and fasting. We are going, to, we, we do live in a temporal world, but we're also eternal beings, and we're also subject to the spiritual entities that are, that are surround all the time. Now, most people know I'm bivocational. I've been a police officer going into my 17th year, and I'm also a pastor. Meaning to speak about the police job, people often say to me, boy, you guys really have a tough job. And I usually say, which one? Sometimes I actually go out on patrol for a little relaxation. <laughs> the young officers, uh, we, we go into these calls that are pretty you know, scary or whatever, and uh, I just kind of go through the call, I go through the motions, and sometimes a young rookie will come up to me and say, doesn't this stuff bother you? How do you, how do you deal with this? And in my mind, I'm thinking, you should try running a church. <laughs> no, just a little humor. But it's not for the faint of heart, because there are spiritual battles, there are spiritual attacks. I know people who, when they start a Bible study, or they start to serve for the Lord, all of a sudden, there's, a, there's an attack, maybe a marriage situation, or a problem with their, their children, and it's, you know, it's Satan's job to try to get you to undo what you're doing for the Lord. So he will come at you. If you never get attacked spiritually, probably you're not really doing much because he doesn't have to go after you. But we're introduced to Timothy. In the Greek, his name is Timotheos, which literally means honoring God or honored by God. Timothy was a young man with outstanding character that certainly exemplified his name. He becomes a travel companion and assistant to Paul, and he gets sent all throughout the ancient world on Paul's direction. Now, it's a blessing to have young people in ministry that want to assist and serve wherever needed. It's just so cool to see young people with the energy and excitement and, and fervor to serve the Lord. And I just would encourage you, let us not, we should never ignore the younger generation. It's so important. People say when it comes to the election uh, process, these are going to be our future leaders. It's important for them to educate themselves in politics. Well, I submit to you, 
It's more important for our young people to understand the ways of God and to have the foundation of God. We can't ignore the youth because someday they are going to be our future pastors, ministry leaders, pastors' wives, um, foundation of the church as we start to get older in years. So I just would encourage you to pour your wisdom, your, your knowledge, your knowledge of the scripture into young people. It's very important. But we see that Timothy is added to the crew. Now, Barnabas and John Mark are no longer a part of this particular crew like we talked about last Sunday. Later on, Paul is killed, so he's out of the picture, but others will rise up and take his place. Christianity survived close to 2,000 years. Paul's gone, Peter's gone, right? But Christianity is still here. What we have to understand is that we're just precision instruments that God uses to further his work. We are expendable. And that's a humiliating or a humbling thought for us. But, you know, they need me. I'm the pastor. Or they need me. I'm in the children's ministry. Or they need me. I'm the head usher. See, we are expendable. If we go, God can use somebody else to fill our shoes. Many come and go, and we can't get hung up on that constant flux in ministry. I actually um, I attended and visited my sending church, the church that I got saved in last night. And I hadn't been there for probably over a year. I walked in and it was like I actually needed directions to the bathroom. I mean, they totally changed the face of it. They remodeled it. And I looked at the bulletin and there's pastors on there that I don't really know. And there's other pastors that I did know that aren't there anymore. But you see this constant flux in ministry, right? And some pastors even get caught up in counting the size of their fellowship. It reminds me of David numbering the people. There was a teaching from one pastor to a group of pastors, and he said, you men need to get out of numbers and get into acts. Okay? That's pretty good advice there. But the Lord's task for us should be to focus as it was theirs. We should almost have like those horses. They put those blinders on them when they're pulling the chariots so they don't get skittish or spooked by what's going on, the traffic around them. All they can see is the path that's set in front of them. And in a sense, we need to be like that. Those horses with those, with those um, blinders, I suppose, and you're just looking straight. I'm just focused on the task that the Lord has for me. Timothy was also the son of a mixed marriage. His father was Greek and his mother was Jewish. And this gives us a little insight into verse 3, which we're going to get into. We don't hear much about dad. Um, we can make the assumption that he wasn't believer. He was not a believer. Uh, because in other scriptures, his mom and his grandma, we find out, were strong women of faith. And they did a good job with Timothy and what they poured into him. And I want to encourage you, those of you who may be here or may be listening on the CD or the uh, website, there's hope for single-parent households. There's big hope. And you can see that in the scripture. And there's hope for families and households where only one spouse is a believer. Here's the encouragement I have for you, and it comes right out of scripture. In 1 Corinthians 7.14, we're told that there's a cleansing and a sanctifying effect on the child when at least one parent is saved. I want you to hold on to that. And some of you may be struggling in this area. You know that if you're a single parent or you're trying to, or, or maybe you're, you are married and your spouse is not a believer and you're trying to raise your kid or your kids in the ways of the Lord, it's 50% harder or 100% harder depending on how you look at it if that other spouse isn't saved or if you're doing it alone. So I just want you to take hope and comfort in the scripture because you may be raising a Timothy and not even realize that. 
And I even talked about that in the children's ministry today before uh, service started. And in my prayer, I thanked all the servants who serve in the children's ministry. And I said, you may be teaching these young children something about God, something about the gospel that they might not be getting at home, depending on where their parents are at. And even my pastor, my senior pastor, uh, Lloyd Pulley, often talked about from the pulpit how his grandmother was a strong believer, and she raised him. And he kind of went his own way, but he always knew she was praying for him, and he eventually came back, and he became a pastor. He's been in ministry for, what, 25 years now. And he's got a very fruitful ministry. So you may be raising a Timothy without even knowing it. And verse 3, we have, it looks like what's a problem here, because what we see is we talked about circumcision in the last chapter, didn't we? That it wasn't necessary. So what's going on here? It seems like a contradiction. Oh, we found one of those Bible contradictions. Paul says he's fighting vehemently, saying circumcision is not necessary for salvation. But now he's going into a different area where there's a largely Jewish population, and he has Timothy circumcised. So what's going on? Did they adopt the when in Rome, do as the Romans do philosophy? Well, the answer is it was a voluntary circumcision. It wasn't necessary. It wasn't necessary for salvation, but Timothy's Jewish background and not keeping the right of circumcision could have been a stumbling block or a barrier to other Jews receiving the gospel. They would be, they'd get hung up on it. They didn't want to do anything that would hinder the Gentiles or the Jews receiving salvation. For some reason, the circumcision thing was a major issue back then, and it makes you wonder, how would they, I, I guess, am I the only one who thinks these things? How would they know or not if Timothy was circumcised? Maybe the public bathrooms, or I don't know. Make you prove it. Either way, don't use your imagination. The question begs, how far, everyone here, how far would you go to reach someone for Christ? How far would you bend? I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Only a few verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting with verse 19. This is what Paul says, writing to the Corinthians. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. Voluntary servanthood. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win some Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without law. And he says, uh, a sidebar here, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. So to, those who, to the Jews who are bound by the law uh, for salvation, Paul would observe the customs of the Jews. And he wouldn't do anything to be a stumbling block. But to those without the law, and he puts that in parentheses, not that I would be lawless, but I would be as, as one without the law, okay, to, to win those that are not in the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. What concessions would you make for the lost? Sometimes if we think that we have to do something, we automatically rebel. Well, I'm not going to do that. I don't have to do that. You can't make me. Almost like a childish thing. But what concessions would we make for the lost? I think about when my wife and I were buying our home, our present home, and we bought it from a couple that were splitting, and they weren't believers. 
And uh, it's very unusual because normally when you buy a home, you don't deal with the people who are selling it. You deal with the realtor. So what I did was I actually met with the man, the husband, and I had a discussion with him, which was unusual. And I said, bro, um, we're Christians. And I shared the gospel with him. And I said, your marriage is much more important to me than this home. Now, even though we were in contract with the new home and we were in contract with the old home, there stood a chance that we would be homeless for a time. But I said to him, brother, your marriage and your salvation is far more important to me. If you can patch things up in your marriage and stay in the house, we will gracefully back out of the contract. Well, it did turn out that it didn't work, but I gave it my best shot. I shared the gospel with him, and I talked to him about how important marriage was to God. Now, listen, I'd like to say that I do that every day. Oh, Pastor Joe, every day he blesses people like that. It doesn't happen all that much, but you know what? Every once in a while, God puts you in a situation where he tests you to see if what, how far will you bend. Chuck Smith said, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken, Right? How far will you bend for the lost? How far will you go? And part of the concession question is also the distraction question as a sub-theme. What is it about your life, my life, our personalities that need to be circumcised because it's a stumbling block to others? It's dead flesh that has to be cut off. What are we known as? That we, what are we known as? If somebody says your name, think about yourself. Well, what am I known as? Am I known as a grumpy person? Am I known as a sarcastic person? Am I known as somebody who's very self-absorbed? Am I known as the church rebel? What am I known as? And the question is, what you're known as, will that distract other people from receiving Jesus? It's a very important question. Do people see Jesus in me when my name is mentioned? Or do they see something about me that's a distraction or a hindrance to the gospel? What's that phrase that says, uh, many people come to Christ because of Christians? Many people refuse to come to Christ because of Christians. It's a double-edged sword. And we have to look at ourselves and say, what dead flesh is it about me that needs to be circumcised and cut off? It's a good question to ask ourselves. So Timothy gets circumcised as an adult. The first thing I thought of was, ouch. Paul was stoned and left for dead, and Timothy was getting circumcised. These guys are radical. They're rock solid. They're no joke. But here... In America, and I love my country, I love my country dearly, I love the freedoms, I love that we can have an election and not like other countries, there's not rioting in the streets, there's order, there's civility. You know, we could disagree, but, you know, have our own agreements and disagreements. But at the same time, there's such a, a strong theme of comfortable Christendom in our country. I don't want to be inconvenienced, I don't want to, be, I don't want to do that ministry because that ministry is beneath me. And this is the type of attitude that per pervades Western society. But then you have the missionaries who come up and address the body. And I can't wait. When they come back from the mission field, I said, listen, you've got to give me a, a five-minute time slot. Come up here and talk to the body about what you've done. And invariably, I have a missionary, one in particular that I'm thinking of, and he says, Pastor Joe, what do you want me to say? Because when I go up there, I'm coached by pastors when I go to other churches to tone it down about the violence and about the attacks on Christians. And I say, well, you don't have to do it here. Pump up the volume. Come up here and tell people what Christians are going through in other parts of the world and what it means to serve on the mission field. It's pretty heavy stuff. I'm blessed here in our fellowship because we have a very high service rate. I've talked to some of my ministry leaders, and we have between a 40% and 50% service rate. So... 
pretty much one out of each two of you are serving in some capacity. And I love it when I see a ministry application and it says, where do you want to serve? And what's written is there, I will serve wherever I'm needed. I mean, that just shows a heart that, hey, I just want to serve the Lord. I want the Lord to use me. Where can you use me? Where are the holes here? What can I fill in for? And I love to be passionate and stir you up. And I can see that it has an effect on you. That's why we have such a high service rate, because you are not just hearers of the word. You are doers of the word, James says. Don't just be a hearer of the word. Now, what are you going to do about it? Eh, nothing sounds good. But the Bible says be a doer also. Do something with, with what God has given you. Timothy, Paul, Barnabas, Luke, Silas are great examples to us. And the more you understand God's word and the more you get excited about it, the more you will act on it. So if you haven't already done so, please go to the back and fill out a ministry application at the end of service. Just kidding. Verse 4 and 5. You see the churches grew. And the question is, how do churches grow naturally? The Bible does talk about unnatural church, church growth. When we talk about one of the, um, uh, the exegesis points of the, the tree that grows really quickly and the birds of the air nest in it, and we went through this before, it's a picture of the, the church growing too fast and bad influences coming into the church. So you could say, wow, that church is 40,000 members. That must mean that there's good teaching there. Not necessarily. It could be gimmicks. There could be um, ways to kind of get you in and make you feel good about the sermon just to keep you in and grow the membership. And you see that. So the question is, how should churches grow naturally? Well, according to the scriptures here, it says, number one, the members were strengthened in their faith. And two, the apostles came to these different areas, and they taught the people to keep the apostles' decrees. Now, what does that mean? That the apostles came by and kind of made some new thing up and everybody was following it? No, it doesn't mean that. The word actually in the Greek, decrees, is dogmata, which where we get in the English, dogma, or beliefs, or tenets. In other words, I come to church, and I ask the question, can you explain, you come into church, your questions naturally are, can you explain God's precepts to me? What does God want from me? Pastor Joe, what is doctrine? What does sovereignty mean? Explain that to me. What's terminology? I don't understand the word propitiation. It's a big word. I can't grasp it. What does God want from me? And these are the questions that people want answered. What do we believe about the rapture, the trinity? Are we amillennialists, premillennialists? Are we dispensationalists? I don't understand those words. Are we any of those things and what do they mean? Right? Please help me understand my relationship to my heavenly father. That's what the church is for. It's not teaching from the pulpit the latest trendy Christian book. That's, the pulpit is reserved for the word of God. Too many people are following man. They want to be concerned. And this is what happened in the ancient uh, world with the the Talmuds, you know, God had his word and people didn't want to read the word or they didn't want to take the time to meditate on it. And what they did was the rabbis would go out there and they would start doing commentaries on God's word. And then what happened was rabbinical commentary started superseding the word of God. So by the time Jesus came, it was a mess. There was the Rabbi Hillel school and the Rabbi Shammai school, and one rabbi was very conservative, and one rabbi was very liberal, and you had all these factions, and the people got confused. It's about the Word of God. It's not about me coming up here with the newest book, 
from the Christian author and teaching you about that book. It's about me going right into the Word of God and teaching you the Word of God. Church is also for, um, not necessarily for great church productions. We don't strive for perfection here. We strive for heart. That's what we're looking for. If you remember in the children's play, um, for those of you who were here during the, the Christmas musical, the funniest times was when the kids messed up their lines, isn't it? That's when you got the most laughs. I remember one, one young lady was supposed to do, one of the, the kids was supposed to do a solo, and all the kids were behind her. And then what happened was their cue was to all leave the stage, and she was going to do the sto- solo. Well, everybody left except for two boys that flanked her, and they were singing with her, right? And one happened to be my son. He didn't follow directions too well. But it was funny. So we don't look for perfection in a church. We look for heart, our heart towards God. And the Bible also tells us that the churches were strengthened. What is the leader's role? It's to make God's word digestible and applicable to the believer's life. Paul and Silas came back with the Jerusalem, the Jerusalem letter, which was basically the people were not understanding the whole law and grace thing, and they helped them to understand the biblical precepts of law and grace and what they were required to do and what they were not required to do. If the, the church does not preach the word of God, it just becomes yet another list, a long list of social organizations, and that's it. And there's plenty of social organizations out there, and that's not a problem. But a church needs to preach the word of God. Verse 6. Now, when they had gone out through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So I'm just going to turn on the uh, projector and kind of show you some of these places. Or I'm going to try to show you some of these places. Okay, so what we have is what we have here is they're, they're heading down. You see Derby, Lystra, Iconium, right? And this is part of Paul's second missionary journey. Okay, here's Asia, not the Asia that we know. Um, and Ephesus is over here, Bithynia and Pontus, Galatia. And this is where they go. They pretty much go west, right across what we now know as modern-day Turkey, to Troas. And then when they cross over, they go to Samothrace, Neapolis, Philippi, and I'm going to explain some of those things also. Not cooperating. Okay. So the Spirit forbade and even prohibited them to go into Asia and Bithynia. Wow. Now, that should stand out in your mind. And normally, I mean, my question is, well, how did that happen? How did the Spirit prevent these guys from going into that area? And why did the Spirit prevent them when their motives were good motives? We want to preach the gospel to these people. The Spirit said, no, I don't understand that. Well, was it through a vision? Was it through a physical presence, like in the, in the time of Joshua? 
When the angel of the Lord appeared with a sword, well, it's pretty heavy stuff. Okay, I'll listen. You got my attention. Was it through illness that they were stopped? Was it through general obstruction? Did you ever try to do something you thought was right and the Lord wouldn't allow you to do it? Sure, all of you have. The reverse of that, did you ever try to get out of doing something and the Lord made you do it? Sometimes God opens the door, and I just look at this in terms of doors of opportunity. And that's what we do. We go through life and there's just doors. Some open doors, some closed doors. Doors of opportunity, doors of sin. And that's what we do. We go through life and we make choices. We either go through these doors or we don't go through these doors. We choose. But I almost picture when you're trying to get out of doing something and God wants you to do it, almost as if the door of opportunity is open and you're saying, no, I don't want to go there. And God kind of turns you around He puts his foot on your tush and gives you the old heave-ho and he sends you through that door of opportunity, right? And sometimes there's a door of opportunity that's closed, but we want to get through that door. And it's almost as if we take the fireman's pickaxe and we try to break the door down of opportunity and get through it. And God says, no, you're not going through that door. And in this situation, God said that. You're not going into these areas. Sometimes God says, not now, but yes, later. And I'll let you know when later. I actually talked to a brother who um, was very sick for a year. And the doctors said, you know, you're going to need major surgery. There's not much we can do at this point except open you up. And he prayed and prayed. And after a year, he went to a service and they they said, if if anybody wants to stand up, you know, we'll ask the Lord, pray if the Lord would heal you. He said, I felt a lightning bolt go down my body. And you know what? I was well from that point, like immediately. He went back to the doctors and the doctors said, we can't explain it, but he could because he was a brother in the Lord. Another instance about a door that's closed but opens up later. I know a couple who, a young couple who were trying to have a baby and they couldn't. And time went on, year, years would go on and they couldn't have a baby. And people said, well, why don't you go to the doctor? You know, they have fertility drugs. God uses doctors too. And they were going to do that. But she felt very clearly that the Lord spoke to her and said, you will get pregnant and you won't use the drugs but it's going to be in my time and I want you to be patient. So against all counsel, she said, I'm not going to do the drugs. I'm not going to do the fertility drugs. God spoke to me and said, I will get pregnant. So, you know, they kept trying and years go by. And then all of a sudden, like that, miraculously, she got pregnant. And they said that she wouldn't get pregnant because she had some type of problem. But God told her, not now, but later on I'm going to open that door for you. So isn't that kind of neat, that whole picture of doors open and close of opportunity and how God works? Here, in this instance in the scripture, we see that eventually, if you look at the round trip through Paul's missionary journey, they do go back to Asia, and Timothy becomes a pastor there in Ephesus, but not now. What's cool about this is the apostles were human as we are. Again, we look at these men and women and we say, wow, these are dynamic people. I could never be like that. I'm not even going to try because they just were so dynamic and my life is falling apart. But remember, they were human. They didn't say, they didn't just know which doors they were supposed to go through. They actually had to find some closed doors uh, in the process. And that should give us uh, encouragement because they had to wait on certain things. And sometimes we do. I just want to read uh, something from the, that, that struck me as I was, it's the Life Application Bible. And he says this. When seeking God's will, number one, make sure your plan is in harmony with God's word. I I say that often. Number two, ask mature Christians for their advice. Three, 
Check your own motives. Are you seeking to do what you want or what you think God wants? Sometimes we kid ourselves and we say, well, I'm going to do this for the Lord, right? Um, that whole doctrine about God wants you to be rich. Well, God wants me to be rich. I'm going to please him by making millions of dollars. <laughs> that might not necessarily be the case, and it could be your own motives. And number four, pray for God to open and close the doors as he desires. So I want to ask you today, as I look out, I can't read any of your minds, all of you, when I talk about these doors, all of you have a picture in your mind of something. It's a job. I've been really trying to get this job. And I don't know why. I just can't. It's just not working. Is God closing the door or is he saying not now? Some of you it may be relatives who are unsaved. My wife and I have been praying for some of our relatives for many years, and it's discouraging. But, Lord, why? It's such a, a good prayer. It's such an honorable prayer. Why aren't they saved yet? For some of you, it's a relationship issue. And you're asking God, I don't understand. It seems so right. What's the problem here? But take hope. Number one, pray. Keep praying. And like Tayo said, fast and pray. And trust him and have patience. Because eventually, if it's not meant to be, it won't happen. The Macedonian vision. So a man from Macedonia, verse 9, uh, he appears to Paul in the night in a vision. And he pleads in this vision, saying to Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, this is personal to me because this is what motivated me to start this church. And let me preface that. Three pastors ago, um, years ago, when my sending church was looking to wholesale, uproot, and move, I went to the senior pastor and I said, you know what? South Brunswick would be a great place to, to put a church. I mean, there's a lot of hungry people. There's a lot of diversity, there's a lot of, you know, exchange of ideas. This would be a great place to plant ground. Well, it didn't happen. They ended up not moving at all. And then another pastor, um, I, he said, tell me about South Brunswick. So I said, South Brunswick is a great place. It's a great place to, you know, have a church. This is something that we should consider. Well, it didn't work out with him. And then the third pastor, the one actually who preceded me, started it, but then he left. And, you know, I was so frustrated because I really felt strongly, and I was terrible in the book of Acts. I never really wanted to tackle this book because there's so much activity and I was confused, and I'm glad I did. But the one thing that stood in my mind was that guy in the Macedonian vision saying, come over to here. And I'm like, am I crazy or am I hearing from the Lord? But I keep hearing, come over to South Brunswick. It was so strong in my heart, and here we are today, which is pretty neat. So I know it was from the Lord. But we see that Dr. Luke now uses plural personal pronouns. Dr. Luke starts, stops saying they and them, and now he starts saying we and us. Did you catch that? As opposed to they and them. Indicating Dr. Luke now is not only narrating history, but by this time he's a part of that history. So in a sense, this book shifts from a biography to an autobiography. He's speaking about himself included in the group. So we see Paul's crew is growing. It started with Paul and Silas. We had the addition of Timothy and now we pick up Luke, Dr. Luke, as the author of the book of Acts. And in verse 10, the Macedonian man asks for help. And Paul comes to the conclusion, the guy says to Paul, come over and help us. That's kind of an open-ended statement, question. I, I, it was me, I'm very inquisitive. I'd probably answer the vision and say, well, what do you mean? What exactly do you need? That's just me. I don't know if Paul asked any questions, but that's all he got. Help us. So, Paul comes to the conclusion that, well, helping means preach the gospel. Okay, you're going to get the gospel. So the question is, how is the gospel going to help him? Well, if you look at the Greek word for help, uh, I think it's boletheia, the Greek word for help, it means 
Greek is a very picturesque language. The word for help literally means to strengthen a vessel, a watercraft, a medium-sized watercraft, with ropes or chains. Wow. In nautical terms, if those of you who you know, like to go boating or anything like that, in nautical terms, it's called frapping. Okay, we have that in the dictionary. Think, keep that in your mind. Ropes and chains to help tie around and strengthen that vessel. In those days, they would use pieces of wood. They didn't have fiberglass that they could pour into molds. They would use pieces of wood. They would tie them together, and they would strengthen them with ropes and chains. And that would hold that vessel together. That's help. The truth of the gospel is that the gospel does undergird us. It does strengthen our hulls. It, it strengthens us, and it gives us our ability to weather the storms and the waves of life as the meaning implies. It's pretty amazing. And the gospel helps everyone. It helped the man in Macedonia. Today it also helps the addict. It helps the self-destructive. It helps marriages. It helps the rich man. It helps the fearful, the criminal, and the proud all the same. That's what the gospel does. Tying us together and strengthening us. Verse 11. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she constrained us. So now they're hopping across from what we know now as Asia Minor, across the Aegean Sea, hopping across the island there, and ended up in what's known as Greece today. Neapolis was the port city for Philippi. Philippi was named a little history after Alexander the Great's father, Philip of Macedon. Philippi was a Roman colony and the chief city in Macedonia, and there was a strong pro-Roman presence with garrisons, retired military, and all that. And that's important when we get into Lydia and why they're at the riverbank. Very strong pro-Roman, pro-pagan presence there. Macedonia was northern Greece, and we'll find out, and as we go through the scripture in Acts, when they speak about Achaia, it, that's southern Greece. So here, the gospel officially goes into Europe from Asia. Verse 13 and 14. There was probably no synagogue in the area when Paul arrived, which required the presence of ten Jewish men, because Paul often went to the synagogue first. He ends up going to the riverbank. He didn't go to the synagogue, so there probably was no synagogue. Um, probably since it was a Roman colony, there was a strong, again, pagan presence. And those who were tr seeking the true God and didn't want to be polytheists maybe felt um, like outcasts, maybe felt pressure from the townspeople. And they went and they met in unusual places, such as the riverside or the riverbank. Lydia was a seller of purple. Today we think, um, and actually it's indicated that she did well financially for herself. The Bible talks about that. And unlike dye factories today that can just take a color and duplicate it and they mass produce colors, back then to get colors, they would have to extract it from different things. Sometimes blood was used to make a red. Sometimes um, plants were crushed, uh, certain types of plants, and they would extract the juices out of it and they would collect it and make a dye out of it. 
Apparently, purple, wherever it came from, was very expensive. So if you were a seller in purple, you probably did very well for yourself. And what I see, what really strikes me here is this Lydia and these people were seeking God. They were worshiping God, which is interesting, without fully knowing who he was. Now, the Bible says, starting in the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament, that those who seek after God will be found by God. If you're here today and you don't know who the Lord is and you're maybe checking out different churches, if you really have a heart towards God, but you've heard so many things, you've watched the History Channel about the Bible, and you're just confused. If you seek after God and you truly have a heart for God, you'll be found by Him. You'll be found by Him. And it's no accident that you're getting the Word of God today. The word, the Greek word for, and I'm doing a lot of the, the Greek today, and sometimes I don't talk about the Greek at all, but it's, it's appropriate here. Um, Greek, again, is very picturesque. When you have the Greek words, sometimes you can parse them or break them down into their component parts and understand something through uh, taking the Greek word apart, right? Uh, but it's very picturesque. Each Greek word has a picture of something. And, you know, Hebrew was like that, too. If you study Hebrew, especially ancient Hebrew, each letter in the Hebrew alphabet has a, 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 a character or a, a meaning associated with it. And a friend of mine is Chinese, and he taught me some Chinese. I mean, don't ask me to speak it. But Chinese is interesting, too. As he would write Chinese, he would show me that each character represents something. So our language, see, we lose something in the English. Not that we can't translate the Bible. But when I read it to you, if I go into the older languages, it brings out the meaning and makes it more alive. Because when the Apostle Paul is writing, he doesn't just use these words willy-nilly. He's guided by the Holy Spirit, and there's a thought he wants to convey to you with these pictures. The Greek word for worship is proskoneo. It's all Greek to me, right? That word, if you take it down into its component parts, it's a picture of a dog licking a man's hand to submit to him as master. Now think about that. Think about that. There are people who are seeking after God. There are people who are seeking to make God their master. There are people who want and yearn for God. And eventually God will put a situation in their path to be found by him. In this case, these people, they were like, nah, the, the whole polytheism thing, I'm just not buying the whole Roman gods. I know there's a God there. I know he's powerful. I know it's not like this, this stuff here that the Romans are talking about. Lord, where are you? And they go down to the river's edge, and they're all in prayer, and they're all seeking after God. And lo and behold, Paul comes, and he gives them the truth, and they're baptized. Now, so what I'm trying to say is that they weren't strong believers before because they've never been baptized before. Once they understand the truth of the gospel, they voluntarily say, oh, I want, just throw me in the water. I want to go in there and I want to come out in newness of life. I want the old man to die and I want to show the world that I'm a believer. So that's the beauty of this, this scripture. A dog seeking after a man, licking his hand to make him his master, right? And that's what we do. That's what we should be doing. We should be seeking after God to have authority over us, to guide our lives, and we're like the faithful canine. <laughs> I got no problem with that. I'll be the faithful canine. I want to submit to God. Verse 15. Paul and company now come to Lydia's family. And this is the first church on European soil. Now you might say, what do you mean? I don't remember them building the building. How is this the first church? If you look at the word in Greek, ekklesia, it literally means to be called out. It's an assembly that's called out. These are a bunch of believers that are called out of the pagan world to set themselves apart, to sanctify themselves, to worship God. And Jesus said, when two or more are gathered in my name, there I will be in the midst of them. We're in a school, right? Doesn't matter. 
When two or more are gathered in my name, Jesus said, there I will be in the midst of them. So Jesus is here. He's guiding us. People erroneously think that church is a building. The church that I got saved in, the first time I came, uh, I was in the warehouse district. And I looked and I'm like, I must have the wrong place. This is a warehouse. Where's the steeple? Where's the statues? Where's the cross? I, don't, I just see a warehouse. Actually, the first time I went, I, I went back home. I was like, I must be in the wrong place. But eventually I went and I walked in and the word of God was being preached there. That was a church. So erroneously, people think it's a building, but that's not the case. It's the believers gathered together to worship Jesus. And Lydia wouldn't take no for an answer. She basically said to Paul, you have to stay. You, you can't leave now. I mean, we just have so many questions. Who does that remind you of that we covered in Acts? Anybody? Cornelius. Cornelius. Next time, drink more coffee in the morning. Um, it reminds me of Cornelius. He was so excited, him and his family, that when Paul was ready to, or when Peter, excuse me, was ready to move on, Cornelius constrained Peter. He couldn't wait to hear the word of God. When I was a kid, I didn't know any better. Oh, I got to go to church. You know, I don't want to go to church. I'm bored. But I didn't understand. Now, I love, it's not like I I leave here today and go, gee, I got to prepare a message for next Sunday. I love it. Well, what's chapter 16 going to show me? What am I going to learn at the end of Acts? What are you going to learn when Acts is over? What did I learn that's new about the Word of God and my relationship to him? So these people were so excited. They're like, Paul, please don't leave us. We've we got a million questions. And when you, when you leave, we're going to think of more questions that we forgot to ask you. It's an excitement for the Word of God. But it's cool how the power of the Word changed her. And I've often quoted uh, Romans, I believe it's 10.17. But when you hear the word of God, it's regenerative. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans 5.20, or John 5.24 says this. Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. You hear the word of God, somehow it's regenerative. God knows. It gets into your soul and your core being. And you're either going to be regenerated or you're going to dig your heels in and resist. You can't hear the word of God and just it, you ignore it. You, you can only take two roads. You could, be, you could be in rebellion. You could be in sin and say, I don't want to hear it. And it's a spiritual thing. Or you can receive it and go, this is what I've been looking for all my life. Why didn't somebody come and tell me this sooner? Right? So that's pretty exciting. Now, one more thing I want you to see before we close. What is with this thing today? Oh, still not working. Okay, pretend it was up there. And if you look at the map, <laughs> it's a little dark, you know, the resolution's pretty tough. But over here in the corner, you'll see a, um, a key, like any map. And it actually has, you know, the horizontal line, and it says, this much distance is this many miles. So what you'll notice with the map is, this is Asia, and this is Europe. Right? And this is the Mediterranean. Here's your key. And what you'll notice is it basically shows when you see Paul's trip from start all the way down to finish, you're talking about thousands of miles because this much distance here is 300 miles. So if you superimpose it on the map, going back and forth, you have thousands of miles of travel on that missionary journey. And that's important because it's staggering when you also think that they didn't have modern transportation. They didn't have um, airplanes. They didn't have fast cars. Most of this stuff was done by foot and um, sailing vessels, right? And if they had a home, 
These trips took years to complete. If Paul had a home, he certainly didn't spend much time there, and I'm sure would be in disrepair when he got back. But I have a question for you, because I really want you to think about this. How many of you are homebodies? Raise your hand. You like being home. I'm a homebody. Now, some of you probably can't wait till I get done talking, so you can go home, take off your shoes, put on your PJs, get a glass of tea, and I know me personally, I have a wood-burning stove in the wintertime. I love sitting by the wood-burning stove. I got my flea bag easy chair that kicks out, and I just lay there, and it's hog heaven for me, if there is such a thing. But it does sound good, doesn't it? Going home and relaxing, especially taking your shoes off. How many of you, after staying with relatives for a week or a month or longer, can't wait to get back to your own home and do whatever you want? Right? Starting to get on each other's nerves, you know, relatives. Um, you know, I just look at home. You've heard some expressions, home is where the heart is. I've heard, Christ's heart, my home. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus had no personal affixing of a home in the temporal realm. Sure, he went somewhere to sleep. Sure, he went somewhere to eat, traveled a lot, but, you know, his home was not here on this earth. Paul certainly caught this vision. He was a committed guy and a great example. When the Bible speaks of home, it's always referring to being united with the Lord forever. That's what home is in scriptural terms. We're only sojourners in this world. My prayer is that we look at ourselves today and we think about our, our lives and understand that the only permanency that we should seek in terms of home, is seen in lieu of eternity. And that attitude carries through in terms of what we do here. So again, as we, before we close, I just would want to ask you, think about home, think about your life, and again, in your mind, think about your home being reunited with the Lord, and then from that point on, it should change your behavior and how we act and the things that we do here. Let's pray.